excited about what we're going to look at. Romans 9, 9, 19 through 24. Romans 9, 19 through 24. Let's read that together and get a feel. We're right in the middle of Romans chapter 9. So if you if you haven't been with us in the previous weeks and you're a little confused this uh, this uh, uh, today, that's all right. You're right where all the rest of us are. Uh, this isn't the simplest thing to uh, understand. And so if you have missed previous lessons or you want to go back and just kind of get the feel for these lessons, go back to uh, glenwoodconnection.org. Uh, all the uh, lessons for this series are there. The notes are there. And so you can listen. You can direct other people to that, and uh, you can have that resource. So let's take a look at Romans 9, 19 through, um, well, well, we'll see how far we read here. Let's look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Then there's like a space there, and there needs to be a space there. Take a breath. Who are these vessels of mercy? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. So once again, to support his argument, he's quoting Scripture, but Scripture where God is speaking. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was Not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us wisdom to understand, but more than understand, to surrender our will, your sovereign will, to surrender our thinking to your thinking, which is above us and beyond us. And so we pray that you would open our hearts And though our heads may hurt, our hearts will burst with praise for such a sovereign and merciful God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in your notes, we want to keep in front of our minds what is the crucial question. All of Romans 9 through 11 is answering one question. We have to keep repeating this. We have to keep this in our minds. What is that question? Has God's word... His saving promises to Israel. In other words, he had promised to Israel, you're my chosen people, and through you is going to come my Messiah. And then the Messiah came, Jesus Christ, and the vast majority of Jewish people, both then and now, the vast majority of Jewish people, God's chosen people, have rejected him. So what's up with that? 
either Jesus isn't the Messiah or God's promise to save his chosen people has failed. So has God's word failed in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment? Now, he unfolds the answer to that question in a very logical way, and and I have it there in your notes, and it it kind of lays out like this. The first question that is being asked and answered is, has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? And that's you, that question's found in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The answer to that question is found in verses 6 through 13. And the answer was no. God's promise of salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional election. In other words, those who are saved are being saved because God chooses them out of his mercy. But that raises a question in your mind. What I just said raises a question, and that question is a question of fairness. Fairness. Well, wait a minute. Is that fair that God chooses rather than it's us that choose? You know, and, and, and so the question is, is God unfair? You have in your notes, is God unfair in choosing unconditionally? That question is asked in verse 14. Let's see it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's answer is very clear. What's it say? By no means. God forbid. No way. And so we answered that question. No, unconditional election reflects the perfection of God's character in all its fullness. In answer to this question of fair, God reveals, or uh, Paul answers by pointing to God's mercy, to his character. Say, hey, is this just? And his answer was, no, it's not just. It's merciful. God graciously saves some when he doesn't have to save any. That then raises the question we're going to talk about today because you're like, okay, you know, I'm seeing that. But if God's will is sovereign, isn't that fatalism? Isn't that fatalism? Isn't everything just fate. In other words, well, if, if it's all up to what God chooses, why do I need to choose anything? Why, why did I get out of bed this morning? Why do I try? You know, why do I, you know, and so the issue is one of fatalism. And you see the question there in your notes. Is God unreasonable to hold us accountable for our choices if no one resists his choices? All right, let's look at the question. It's in verse 19. Paul knows that that this is going to come up. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, isn't it all up to fate? It's just fatal. It's all fatalism. Uh, Let me tell you, just uh, I'm no philosopher. Uh, I'm a teacher of the word of God. And so I don't pretend to, to know a lot of philosophy or understand a lot of philosophy. And I bet you, you don't care to know a lot of philosophy and, and all that, but we do need to kind of look at what, what, what's fatalism. And so uh, in, in researching this a little bit, uh, I found one of the arguments for fatalism is, is called the idle argument, the idle argument. And it's a classical argument for fatalism and the futility of action. So let me share with you how it goes, and I think it's very relevant uh, to our discussion. Here's the idle argument. If it is fated that you will recover from an illness, then regardless of whether you consult a doctor or not, you will recover. 
Okay? But also, if it's fated that you will not recover from an illness, then regardless of whether you consult a doctor or not, you will not recover. But either it is fated that you will recover from illness or it's fated that you will not recover. Therefore, it's futile to consult a doctor. In other words, the outcome is determined. So what? Why, why, you know, why, why go to the doctor? Hey, that would be a glorious, glorious thing. The only problem with that, well, here's the thought. Presumably, it's futile because what you will do will have no effect. But so, uh, another philosopher replied to this and said, the conclusion doesn't follow because it may have been fated that you will recover as a result of seeing the doctor. Okay, this gives you a little taste of where this goes. Now, you say, well, that sounds goofy. Well, it may sound goofy, but this is exactly how some people argue when they're taught sovereignty. Well, if God's sovereign and he's already determined who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, then why do I need to bother to receive Christ? It's going to happen. Or if he's decided all this, then why does it bother if I share Christ? Because it's going to happen whether I share Christ with someone. Why give to missions if all this is determined by his will? If, if, and, and, and do you see where this comes in? Do you see the objection? Look again, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, Paul's going to answer that question. And he does so in verses 20 through 29, which I just read to you. That's his answer. And so I want you, and it says in your notes, and I want you to, to fill in this blank so you can get involved in this. Remember, the question is being answered from a God-centered perspective, not a man-centered one. All of these questions, has God's word failed? Is, God's, is God fair to unconditionally choose some? Is this fatalism? Uh, why does he hold me accountable for my choices if his choice is the ultimate one? All of these, these questions come from a man-centered perspective, and, God, and Paul is going to answer them from a God-centered perspective. Now, to outline the passage so that you kind of can see where we're going, it says in your notes there, the outlining the passage is once again easy, but understanding it is once again very hard. This is the heart of Romans 9. This is the heart of the passage. It's fairly easy. There is what I'm calling a natural objection. You will say to me then, Paul says, I know what you're going to say. Here's what you're going to say. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Then Paul counters that with an emotional confrontation. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Then he, in that confrontation, which I'm going to show you, practically borders on an interrogation because the confrontation are four questions. Question, 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 question. And they're rhetorical. In other words, he doesn't expect, the answer is obvious and he just, it's like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. So it's a real confrontation. And at the end of that confrontation though, he breaks off. And in most of your Bibles there in verse 23, there's that long dash he breaks off and he stops the confrontation. He stops the inter interrogation because he's overwhelmed with the grace of God in Christ and he makes personal application. Notice verse uh, 24, even us, even us. Finally, you know, we're out of Genesis. We're out of Exodus. We're out of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Pharaoh, Moses. Now he's talking about us. 
He says, this applies to us. And so there's that personal application. And then comes the scriptural confirmation where he says, look, I'm not making this up. God has said it in his word. Now, we'll get to the first three. We'll complete the others as well as deal with some very difficult questions that are going to be raised by today's lesson. So let's dive into this and let's look at the natural objection. Let's look at this objection of fatalism. And I guarantee you, like even in, in your groups, if you've been discussing this in your iLife groups, if, if you have a discussion on these topics, these questions are going to come up. And one of these, it always it will come down to this. Well, then what's the use? Okay, so let's look at the natural objection. Uh, the New Living Translation has a great paraphrase of this question. I put it there in your notes because it really captures what the objection is. Well, then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? You can't get that any clearer. That's the objection. Now, this objection flows from the previous verse in particular. Let's look at verse 18. Here's the conclusion of last week's lesson. So then, he has mercy on who? Whomever he wills. And that's the most literal translation. He doesn't say whomever he wills to have mercy on. He ends with just that bold statement. He has mercy on whomever he wills or desires. And he hardens whomever he wills or desires. So there's this bold, blunt statement that it all settles on whose will on god's will well therefore you can understand why this objection is very natural it comes up uh if salvation is ultimately due to god's will and and let me just stop here and take you back through let's look at romans 9 11 i mean this is this is a whole stream of this chapter there's no way there's no way we can deny that this is the emphasis of this chapter. If salvation is ultimately due to God's will, because look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of what? Of him who calls. Verse 15, drop down to verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? God who has mercy. And then you come to 18, and now it's no longer the God who calls. It's no longer the God who has mercy. It's centered on what ultimately, ultimately our salvation depends on. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, if so here's the thing. If salvation ultimately is due to God's will, and if no one can ultimately, and indeed no one does resist that will, as we saw in the example of Pharaoh, then why does he still hold us accountable for our sins? In fact, if you take this fatalism too far, some will even say, well, if that's true, then God should be accountable for creating sin. Or for causing people to sin. Pretty serious stuff. Needs to be answered. First of all, it's okay to raise these questions. We're going to see in a moment. I'm going to show you in this natural objection. It's not wrong to raise these questions. You can't, you can't be human and not raise these questions as you read through this passage. 
Nod your head like that makes sense. It's not the question. It's not the question that's wrong. It's the attitude with which we ask. That's going to be key. Well, let's make some observations about this objection. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a what I'm calling a natural. It's a natural objection that is a result of not only human reasoning, but is also rooted in unbelief or a fleshly approach to God, a, an unbelieving heart. Okay, so this question rises naturally to human reason, but it also natural, meaning it's how the natural man thinks who is not spiritual and who is not does not have God's perspective on life. It, it, and it's rooted in a heart of unbelief, the way it's worded in this in, in, in the chapter. Let's let's look at it. Let me let me show you that. Notice that the concern of the objection is why does God still find fault? Notice the objection. Why does God still find fault? What's the point of that? The point of that is. Well, I did something bad. Now, why is he still why is he still mad at me? Now, if you've been tracking with us through this chapter, we shouldn't be saying, why does he still find fault? What should we be saying at this point? Why does he show mercy? And why does he show mercy to a sinner like me? But see, the the the, the slant of the question is, I I know I'm a bad boy, I know I'm a bad girl, but he shouldn't blame me for that. Now, you parents have heard this, haven't you? This is not new, okay? This is how us sinners think. When we've been bad, we look for ways to what? Make excuses and shift blame. And you know as a parent that when your kids do that and their heart is wrong in how they do it, you have to tell them, hey, because you did it. I don't care what around you. I don't care what you think made you did it. You did it. Okay, so... The, the, the question, the objection is not focused on God's mercy, which is the focus of God and Paul in this passage. It's focused on why does God still hold me accountable for the sin? Basically, his question is a defense of Pharaoh. Are you with me? Because he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he's saying, well, wait a minute. Why do you hold Pharaoh accountable if you hardened his heart? Well, the answer to that question, I'll just be quite honest with you. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that my flesh and my natural reasoning, I cannot understand. I cannot explain that to you with my own natural reasoning. And I'll tell you this, my own flesh, my own natural reasoning doesn't like Paul's answer. And here's Paul's answer. It's real simple. God's holy. You're not. You're accountable. Yeah, but he's sovereign. Yeah, but he's sovereign and he's holy and you're responsible and you're sinful. If you read Exodus 4 through 14, the story of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, if you read Exodus 4 through 14, you'll see the same mystery that Pharaoh does not and he cannot resist God's will. Did Pharaoh try to resist God's will? Let my people go and Pharaoh's consistent answer was no. Did that did did the people get let go? Yes. He 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 tried to resist, he continued to resist. And, and what happened in his resistance is that he failed because the people were let go. In fact, he let them go and he continued to resist God and it led him into the Red Sea of God's wrath. You see, the tone and the attitude of this objection borders on Pharaoh's very first reply to God's command to let Israel go. 
Turn your Bibles to Exodus 5.2. Exodus 5.2. Exodus 5.2. The tone of this attitude. Why does God still find fault if no one resists? The tone of it is very close to the same attitude that Pharaoh had in Exodus 5.2. And in Exodus 5.2, you've got to realize... Here is the, uh, this is the first time that that, Pharaoh, uh, that God, Moses comes and says, let my people go. Very first time. Here's his very first response to that. And uh, here's what he says. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, come on. Do you not hear the tone? Do you not hear? I mean, who is he in light of who I am? I'm not going to do this. He can't make me. I'm going to do my thing. Now, in that same idea of why does God find fault, you, you, you sense, you hear the question, who is God to judge me? This is a natural objection. And behind the question... Why does God still find fault is the attitude, who does God think he is? That's why the second description of this objection is, this is an antagonistic objection. This is an antagonistic objection that is presented in a you versus me way that the previous objection in verse 14 was not. So look at verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? But look at verse 14. 14 was not so antagonistic. 14 says what? What shall we say then? What shall, you know, we're all on the same page. We're all saying, wow, you know, should, should we say that's unfair? We're all, but now he's answered that question and he's brought it down to the ultimate answer. Listen, God's sovereign. And the objector, the listener, some do not like that. And now they say, you will say to me. Now it's a little more antagonistic. It's a little more hostile. It's you, me, and it's getting hotted, hot and heated. Now, have you ever discussed God's sovereignty with people? It gets hot and heated. Okay, it gets real emotional and it gets real, it can, it can get antagonistic and hostile. Now, Paul doesn't stop here and say, by the way, quit teaching on sovereignty because it can get emotional. In fact, you know what we're going to find? Paul gets emotional. Paul gets passionate. Paul gets really intense. And what's going on here is a... there. And so let me say this. This question can be asked in one of two ways. This can be asked in a very honest, humble, sincere way that is seeking to understand God and His ways and His merciful action. Or this question can be asked in a rather, let's say, dishonest way or self-deceived way that is proud and that is insincere because it's trying to avoid what? Personal responsibility. And it's not asked by a seeker but more as a sinner or a rebel. Okay, so the, so the question 
is the, pro- the problem is not so much the question, it's the heart in which we ask it. God's sovereign. Well, you know what? Then that means I can do what I want, and He shouldn't blame me. Well, that's just, a, you know, let's just be honest, that's a rotten attitude. Okay, it's a wrong attitude, and it's certainly not a biblical one. There's another way of saying, whoa, I've never thought about God this way. I've never, uh, uh, I've never thought of my salvation in this way, and it's raising all sorts of questions. Could I ask a question? Could, could, could we interact on this? Two totally different tones. So this, though, is an antagonistic objection, and because it's a hostile uh, question, Paul is going to have an intense confrontation. So there's one way you deal with this, and there's another way you deal with this. We still need to love in truth, but I'm just telling you, there's two different ways. Just like with your kids. When your kids are sincere, and they're just saying, hey, I need some clarification, mom and dad, then you sit down if you're a wise parent, and you give humble, honest, loving clarification. But if they're rebelling... You're still loving, honest, and humble, but you lay down the law and say, I'm sorry, there's no more discussion on it. Now, thirdly, this is a fatalistic objection that basically accuses God of making people into robots or puppets. That's what the, he says, look, I'm not in control. The master puppeteer is in control. I'm not, I'm just a robot. Whatever God wants me to do, this is what I do. You know, I can't, so it's a fatalistic And this is a common reaction against God's sovereignty. It's a common reaction against unconditional election as taught by Paul in this passage, which is why Paul brings it up. Because here again, these questions, these objections are ways to prove that we are properly understanding this passage. If I taught last week, I should, if I taught last week the passage as Paul reveals it, you should have left last week from a human perspective going, That sounds fatalistic. Or if you're on a rebellious side, well, hey, then why does God find fault? But we've already seen that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, that even though God's choices and Pharaoh's choices are not equal, that's what we have to understand. Listen, a lot of people say, I'm going to be biblical and balanced. God's sovereign and people have choice, as if these two are equal. Well, if both are true, and they are, they are not both equal. Because when we say God's sovereign, that means he's up here over my choices, even though I still am responsible for my choices. So they're not equal. But, and and, and because they're not equal, the Pharaoh story, Exodus 4 through 14, exalted God's sovereignty without eliminating human responsibility. And there's your picture. These two are not equal. God's sovereignty is exalted, and yet it's exalted in a way that does not eliminate human responsibility. You say, that makes my head hurt. Exactly. It's a mystery that is beyond our comprehension to reconcile. But it's a mystery that we do not have the right to rebel against and resist. Four. This is where it's going to... Now your head's really going to... This is an accurate objection that draws the right conclusions, but with the wrong attitude. Everything that's said in that objection is a right conclusion, but it's drawn and responded to with a wrong attitude. Let me show you. First, God still holds sinners accountable for our choices. 
God still holds sinners accountable for our choices to sin and rebel. Because that's the first, he says, why does God, uh, let, me, let me look at it again. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? That's just another way of saying, why does he hold me accountable? Well, guess what? That's a right conclusion because you are held accountable as I am. Now, I've got all sorts of scripture there. The first couple ones are from Romans. Romans 3 in particular. Romans 1 and 3. So, as Paul teaches Romans 9, he's assuming we've already read Romans 1 and 3. And in Romans 1 and 3, he's made very clear. In fact, in Romans 1, 18 through 20, he says, look, God has shown His eternal power, the same word for power that we see in Romans 9. He's shown that power in creation, and people have seen it, and what, do they, what choice do they make? They suppress the truth, they substitute the reality of an unseen God for a visible idol, and then, and then Paul makes this clear statement, they are without what? Excuse. And then in Romans 3, 9 through 18, he goes through and he says, he charges all are under sin, Jew, Gentile, the religious person, the self-righteous person, the pagan, the atheist. They're all charged as under sin. And here he says things like, none are righteous. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he hits Romans 3.23 that we could all say together, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's God holding us accountable. That's saying we are responsible. And then I have all sorts of verses from Exodus. And all those verses are incidents in Exodus 4, uh, 1 through 14 where Pharaoh himself responsibly and uh, responsibly and accountably chooses to sin. Let me just read two of them. Exodus 7:23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. You know, Moses is confronting, you know, uh, uh, the uh, miracles are being performed. He doesn't even take it to heart. Then listen to this one. Exodus 9, 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder ceased, as soon as God removed the plague of the fiery hail, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servant. What I'm saying is, it is very clear in Scripture, God, our sovereign God, holds us responsible and accountable for our sinful choices. So that was a right conclusion. The second conclusion is right, too. God is still sovereign over our choices so that no one ultimately resists his will. They're both true. Mystery, mystery. God is still sovereign over our choices so that no one ultimately resists his will. Now, look at the objection. For who can resist his will? There's two ways you can translate that. One way is in a a present tense, no one continually resists his will. No one continually resists his will. There's another way that you can translate it, and it's, it's still accurate to the original text. No one resists his will, and it will have lasting results. Okay, so 
the objection can be seen two ways. Either no one continually resists or no one resists back here in the past and its results continue to happen in the future. Either way, here's the bottom line. People do resist God's will. He's not saying, you know, people do resist God's will even though he's sovereign. But here's the reality. They do not and they cannot continue to do so. It will not be a continual resistance. Why? Because he is sovereign. Did Pharaoh resist God's will? Yeah, he did. Did he continue to do it? Yes. But ultimately, did his continual resistance accomplish what he was trying to accomplish? No. His resistance was, I will not let them go. And what did he end up doing? His resistance came to an end. He let them go. Also, once he said in Exodus 5, I will resist, I will not let them go, did that result continue on into the future? No, it was overruled by God's sovereignty. Now, I want you, you can turn to these passages if you want, but I, I, I don't know that I have, yeah, I have them in your notes. I want you to read a couple, uh, I want to read some of these, because I don't want you to think that all of this is located in Romans 9, and the rest of the Bible is silent on God's sovereign purposes. Many of you in this class have joined us in reading through the Bible in 90 days, and you've read through the Old Testament more times in the last three years than maybe you have ever had in your whole life. And you have read these verses, but we tend to glide over these verses and not recognize what they're really saying. So let me read a couple about God's sovereign sovereignty over our choices and how no one ultimately can tell God what to do. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he Can it be any clearer? Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. I think that pretty much covers everything. Isaiah 46.10, he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. And here's what he says. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Listen to Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that's, that's very relatable to what we're studying. In other words, no one can stop his hand and say, uh, I think you're wrong on that. You better stop that. And no one can say to him and hold him accountable, what are you doing? You're messing this thing up. And yet, the objector in Romans 9 is exactly saying that. Why does he still find fault? He's, he, he's unfair. He's unjust. He's unreasonable. Let me read one more. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. In other words... Uh, back then, they'd make decisions by, uh, you know, rolling the dice. He, 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 take, put yourself in Las Vegas, and here's what he's saying. The roll of the dice might be done by your hand, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Oh. You see, God is the sovereign judge who will bring their resistance to an end in judgment. And he is a sovereign savior who will save from of, some of them from their resistance by showing them mercy. 
But here's the bottom line. The choice is his to make. But, please stay with me. Our choices are still real and we will be held accountable for them. I like how John Stott, a a Bible uh, scholar, just recently died. Here's what he said. For we all deserve to receive nothing from God's hand but judgment, for we are sinners by nature and by choice. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God. This is now now here's the bottom line. This is a mystery. We can't fully understand it. We can't fully unravel it. We must humbly surrender to God's greater wisdom, God's greater majesty, and God's greater mercy. Or we're going to rebel and answer back like the person does in verse 19. Therefore, Paul deals with this natural objection in a very emotional and confrontational way. So let's look at that. Number two, the emotional confrontation. Now, this goes from verses 19 through basically 23. It goes from 19 to 23. But it starts out with this very emotional, confrontational thing. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Wow. This is not a clarification like he does elsewhere in Romans. This is not a correction like he did up in verse 14. There's no God forbid... There's no, by no means. He's saying, no, you nailed the conclusion. It's your attitude that is wrong. So let's take a look at this. First of all, this is a very emotional confrontation. This is why he says, oh man. He's getting, this phrase, oh man, is in scripture. And it happens in, you know, the the emotional levels up here. Are you crazy? You know. I mean, he's, he, he, it, it's up here. It's very emotional. Number two, this is a very direct confrontation. Can you get any more confrontational than who are you? Who are you? Oh, man. Wow. See, the objector said, who does God think he is? And what is Paul coming back with? Who do you think you are, oh, man? You're forgetting your place. You are going to answer back and tell a sovereign God how to run this universe. You, you frail, puny, weak individual who was made of the dust of the earth with his very hands and whose next breath is dependent on his sovereign grace who cannot accomplish anything unless God of this universe accomplishes it through you? You? Who when cancer comes, you cannot cure it? When an earthquake comes, you cannot stop it? When a relationship is broken, you cannot reconcile it every time? You? You? Are answering back to Him who can do all of that? Who do you think you And if you want to capture this, go to Job 38 through 41. In Job 38 through 41, 
God comes down and he takes Job to task. And he just goes through. Were you there when the stars came into place? Were you there when the deep sea creatures are created? Were you there? Job just covers his mouth and says, I thought I knew you, but now I see you. Now I really get it. Man, I don't know what I'm talking about. I fear you. I worship you. I acknowledge that you're not only sovereign, but you're merciful. To even have let me rant and rave against you. And then to be so gracious to come down and rebuke me. Not in outright anger, but in a gracious, merciful way. Because you do love me, Lord. And you want me to understand who you are. And you don't want me to rebel against you. Anyway, whole another couple more. Okay, so it's an emotional, it's a very direct, and it's a very clear confrontation. And I think I've driven that home. Who do you think you are to call God to account for his choices? Who do you think you are to act as God's judge? Who are you as a weak human to criticize Almighty God? Paul drives home who God is, because this is the objector's basically saying, who does God think he is? He says, oh, you want to know who he is? I'm going to ask you four questions. And in those four questions, I'm going to answer who God is. And here's who he is. First of all, God is God, and we're not. Now, I know that's basic, but how many times last week did you forget that? How many times did I fail to live last week in my emotions and my thoughts with the simple truth, God is God, and I'm not? Number two, God is the maker, and we are what he made out of dust. Hey, you know, God's the maker. That's verse 20. Because notice he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You're God. He's God. I'm so, whoa. He's God. Don't, don't, don't get me. He's God. You're man. And then, will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? And then number three, God is the potter and we are the clay pots, which he has created for his purpose. Yet we rebel against it. He's the potter. Because he goes on, he says, 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So God's God, and we're not. God's the maker, and we're what he made. God's the potter, and we're just clay pots that were created for his purpose. And then number four, God is the designer. He's the designer or the planner. Uh, he, he's the one who's devised this. God is the designer and we are the works of his hands put on display to reveal his purposes, which, by the way, are greater than our human understanding. You say, how great are his purposes? Here's the whole idea of the clay pot thing. Okay, do you see that analogy in these verses? See the analogy? He's the maker. He's the potter. We're what's molded. We're the clay pots. Now, here's a clay pot. Made on a, you know, a potter's wheel. Here's the potter, you know, with his hands, molding that clay, right? Now, what's the... How much say does that pot have in what this potter does? Huh? None. I mean, you know, he's not sitting there going, Ooh, ouch, you're squeezing me over here. Oh, man. Oh, no, I want to be a vase with, with three handles. 
you know, or four handles or two. I don't even know why I said three. Two handles, uh, you know, and you're making me into a, a, a coffee mug. You know, you're making me into a, a, a spittoon. I don't want to be a spittoon. I want to be a Voss. Right? Now, is that pot saying that? And let me say, if he is saying that, is it accomplishing anything? Is the potter saying, oh, by the way, Clay, what would you like to be? I'm clueless up here. No, that potter, he goes. And by the way, if in the middle of this, he says, I'm going to make it this way and it doesn't work, what can he do to that clay? He can just crush it down and do what? He can start it all over. And if he says, you know what, I thought I was going to go and make a spittoon, but this clay, you know, I'm working with this clay, and in my own purposes and desires, I got 20 spittoons sitting over there. I'm going to make a, a beautiful vase. I'm just saying that. Isn't that how rich people say vase? I say vase, but I'm just saying vase, trying to, trying to escalate it into a great honor, okay? Gwen, Gwen, I don't say, Gwen, go buy us a vase, you know, but uh, I'm just trying to do that. Okay. Is there a pretty big difference between the potter and the pot? Okay, now what is he trying to say? Here's what he's trying to say. He is not saying that we are, uh, as people, are not mere pot. That's not what he, you know, that people are, are uh, you know, choiceless, brainless, heartless. No, people are made in whose image? God's image. We're responsible, we have choices, we're accountable, we can devise plans, but who is the one that ultimately accomplishes those plans? God. Okay. So what he's saying is, how big a gap is there between the potter and the pot? How big? Huge. Huge. To the point to where, you know, it's just, it's huge. Now, what he's trying to say is, in the same way, how big is the difference between God and the people he's created? Huge. To the point, ah, to the point, those of you on the internet, the marker failed. Uh, huge to the point that it's like this. As foolish as it would be for thinking a pot could influence and tell a potter what to make him, so people made in God's image are way out of bounds to think that I can tell the creator and redeemer of the universe, I think you're blowing it on this Pharaoh thing. You know, I, I, think, you're, I think you're just a little unfair and unjust on this Pharaoh thing. I think I understand a little bit better how you could accomplish your purpose. Now, that sounds as crazy as saying a pot. Why did you make me this way? So, I hope that helps you. By the way, another thing, you go to the Plaza Art Fair and you see some of that beautiful pottery work, some of that beautiful artwork, and it makes you say, wow, I'd like to know who created that. I'd like to know what is the... Per-. You don't sit there and go, wow, that made itself. You know, wow, that painting painted itself really good. You know, that pot just formed and, and fired itself really well. You sit there and you go, wow, who is the talented, creative uh, awesome artists that, that produced that. That's what we should be thinking about God. Now, second, uh, fourthly, this is a very effective confrontation. This is a very effective confrontation. 
Paul drives his home point and he pins his objector against the wall with four very effective questions. It's more of an interrogation. It's, it's, it's that rapid fire. It's not only who you know, do you think you are, but, but he, he rams home a point. And so I knew you know, taking this is going to take more time, but I think we have to understand how he's confronting us. And, um, and so I looked at each of these four questions, because there's four questions, and I asked myself, what is he trying to do? Because he's not asking these because he's mad. He's asking these because he needs to change our perspective to a God-centered one. And so let's see if this helps. Number one, the first question reminds us of who we are. Verse 20, we are puny people not the almighty God. So if you want to jot that down, we're puny people. We're people, we're not God. The second question, I really think, puts us in our place. The second question puts us in our place. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me thus? We are creatures, we are not the creator. He just puts us in our place. He puts us on the potter's wheel and gets us out of the mentality that we're the potter of our lives. Okay? And notice he puts in the objector's mouth another why question. Why does he find fault? Why have you made me this way? And if you really go through this study of God's sovereignty, you end up asking why questions, right? Why? 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 But just like in raising kids, there's a time when the why questions must stop because they're no longer sincere question. They bleed over into excuse making blame-shifting, and justifying one's wrong action. And so I think there's something to be said here. There's a point where the why can no longer be answered, and we just need to humbly submit. Um, And again, let me say one more time, he is not discounting sincere questions. I have questions. You have questions. But it's that hard rebellion. He's putting us in our place. Number three, The third question shows us God's right to fulfill his purposes in our lives. We're the clay pots he designs. We're not the potter that comes up with the design for our life. Notice the the most key word, if, if, if you mark in your Bible, and I hope you all do, verse 21, has the potter no right? Has the potter no right? I Just circle that word, highlight it, and say that's the key. See, I titled this lesson, I've I've tried to come up with one-word definitions of all these lessons. And today's lesson is entitled, Freedom. Now, what's ironic, when we talk about God's sovereignty and we start talking about freedom, what are we usually talking about? Whose freedom? Ours. What is Paul talking about? God's freedom. See, that's the point. Free. He He has the right. He has the authority. He has the character. He has the integrity. And may I say it? He has the mercy to make the right decisions. Can we say an amen? He's free, folks. He's the potter. He's the creator. And he is the redeemer. And we are not. And so we need to humbly not question him, but come to him and say, I need your mercy. 
I need your wisdom. I need your grace. Because me exercising my choices down here, I've made a mess of things. Can we all say amen? Because if you still think your choices are working for you, you're not ready for a Savior. If you still think your wisdom and your self-orientation and self-centeredness is accomplishing the best that you have in life, then you're not ready for God's mercy. It's available to those who say, I am messing my life up. My choices, even to my best intentions, are falling way short of what I desire. I am not satisfied. I am not fulfilled. And I am not holy like you are holy, God. I need So I come to you. The fourth question is this. This is where we'll end today. The fourth question is to confront us with the sovereign purposes in saving people. It's the mystery of his majestic mission of mercy. And when you look at verses 22 through 23, this is where I I devised the title for this series. The mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. And if you want to get to the heart of the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And what is he trying to accomplish in your life this morning, as well as in the entire universe? Then you ponder verses 22 through 23. Because in his majesty, he is calling out for himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue, rebellious sinners to whom... He is giving a new heart in whom he is cleansing of their sins that he might display them as beautiful vases. Yes, vase in a glorious way to point to his glory as a sovereign but merciful God. Man, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. And so I end with this one simple point. God is free to do as He chooses with His rebellious creation in keeping with His revealed character, which is so merciful, it's beyond our comfort. Now, next time that we get together, actually, we'll have Randy. Randy, if you would handle the rest of chapter 9 for me. And Randy, if you would discuss double predestination, I'd really appreciate it if you just tackle that while I'm, while I'm on this Disney cruise. While I'm in the Caribbean, I am going to be in the Caribbean going, Randy's going to handle the rest of of chapter 9. Randy's going to be teaching for us next week. I humbly say thank you to you uh, for uh, giving us a, a way beyond, very merciful, very gracious, way beyond what we would ever ask and, and or even think, uh, trip uh, Disney cruise. So we thank you for that. Pray you'd pray for us. My dad's in the hospital. Uh, and... Uh, We're just praying that God will work all this out. And uh, I love you. I hope this is helping you. I hope this is really helping you. We just serve an amazing God. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you that uh, your ways are not our ways. I, I, I I just say that right up front. I am so glad that your ways are not my ways. I can't run my life, much less help you in how to run the universe.
And so I thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, merciful, and yet you are just and holy. And I pray that, Lord, we will grab hold of this and it will transform us. It will make us be more bold. It will make us be more caring. We will have greater faith in you and we will risk more in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray.